Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I come into, uh, I, I've been working with the LaRouche movement for 10 years now. And I have had so many experiences of people getting wide-eyed and freaked out to be talking to the LaRouche guy, mm. you know, or people saying horrible things, completely untruthful, fraudulent uh, slanders and attacks right to my face and stuff like that. And they don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're just repeating something that they heard. And um, something has shifted where it's like people are not so intimidated. They're like their identity is not threatened by discussing LaRouche's ideas anymore. Hmm. Uh, and that's where I want to be. We're not, I'm not trying to uh, take over something or anyone, um, but I'm trying to communicate my own view that LaRouche uh, contributed certain ideas that he gave them to you. You know, they're for you. Welcome to the Space Commune Podcast. I'm Alex. My co-host is Fox. Today, we're joined by Daniel Burke, an activist with the LaRouche Organization and the Schiller Institute. He also ran for U.S. Senate in New Jersey in 2020. Thank you for having me. Hi, thank you so much. So you were saying you were uh, you're part of the LaRouche Organization. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, what would you say, you know, today now that I mean, he. Lyndon LaRouche is not around anymore, like, mm -hmm. but it seems like people are interested, getting more interested in the ideas. Um, so what, I mean, what would you say like is contributing to that right now? Well, I, I mean, I watched your, um, your recent feature, which had these uh, clips of uh, many of the different podcasts that you guys have done. The energy and, and Marxism video you're talking energy about. Energy and Marxism. Yeah. And um, I really enjoy... Uh, listening, learning about things that I, I'm not familiar with necessarily. I don't, I don't really come from a left background. I haven't studied Marx, um, but LaRouche did. And he, you know, back in the 1970s, he wrote a book called Dialectical Economics, which is all about um, his critique of Marx's Marxian thought, not merely, much more than that, but it does contain that. So in, over, the past, over the past really year, I've come to learn a lot more about people on the left, about socialist thought, about and see the way that people are responding to what I think is an onrushing dark age. I, I, you know, when I look at the conditions of the world, when I look at the response of world governments to the pandemic, um, when I look at the arc of the last 50 years of deindustrialization, of breakdown in the Western economies. I say to myself, this could really go bad. This could go, this is headed in a direction that uh, can only mean immiseration or possibly world war. And when I, uh, what I've noticed is that a lot of people are responding to that, to that reality. And I think that that's partly what your, uh, your interlocutors that um, you, you, you're talking with in energy and Marxism are responding to that the whole paradigm of the Malthusian new left uh, has clearly brought us here. It's no longer possible to, or participated in that. I'm not blaming, and it's not, 
it's sort of a phenomenon caused by the people who are actually writing the policy to bring us here. But um, people are responding to that and recognizing that there are other options. I think a lot of the political dynamic of the past year, past couple of years has been defined by people looking at China and realizing that you don't have to do things the way the neoliberals have been doing it. We don't have to give in to it. And in that circumstance, you know, LaRouche's ideas are becoming much more um, available to people to, to discuss. And, and maybe yeah. it's easier for people because he's dead, you know? Right. If so, well, that's, yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, did you see, uh, it's been going viral, that picture of, you know, at the Olympics, they, they're staging some kind of downhill slalom event. Mm -hmm. And in the background, you see industry. I mean, people think it's nuclear plants. It's not. It's I think it's some kind of steel plant in the background. And people are saying, oh, my God, I hate industrial society. It's like, isn't that, a, you know, they have fat in China. They have factories where they make stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they're daring. They're daring to do to, like, put it all together where, like, you have these incredible athletic feats happening, you know, at the foot of this cathedral of industry where they they're making things and they're they're, you know, change. They're changing the environment to suit humanity um you know there's something about that and like the western reaction to it is i've seen a lot of people say, oh my god oh horror so bad <laughs> yeah i well okay let me pose this i think this is the overarching question is uh what is man what is humanity what is mankind and you have it's rather straightforward to me that um and you guys have done an excellent job of of <laughs> pointing out the, uh, the image of man expressed by the Malthusian left. Um, it's that man is a cancer. Man is, a, uh, is nothing more than another animal. And if you privilege him above any other animal, then that is anthro, you know, anthropocentrism or whatever. And uh, you're, you're, you know, you're not allowed to do that. All of, all, uh, everything should be in stasis. Uh, there's a yeah stasis that's right? a good that's a good word for it is the the prevention of thing of progress which is kind of insane when you look at it from a scientific historical perspective uh like you know this energy flux idea that you've presented um just part of larouche's ideas right is this energy flux idea that if you look at how evolution has happened every time the, the energy kind of becomes revolutionized you have even more you know it's it's moving away further and further away from stasis and everything is kind of like exploding in like different kinds of variations and um i don't know it's like a higher vibration i don't even, i don't know how to say it without sounding like like uh you know <laughs> like a, a crunchy uh <laughs> yeah like yoga person or something but it's almost like a, yeah, like what, how they call it, like a higher vibration or, mm. or something like that. Yeah, there's some, there's some process that's being expressed. And, and the, the requirement is that we look at the rule, the, the principles that govern that process, so to speak, from above. Because in evolution, you go constantly to greater complexity, uh, to greater what, what there's an American uh, named Dana, who, uh, who came up with the idea of civilization, 
that if you look at the history of evolution, you have an increasing tendency towards a centralized nervous system hmm. and then and the use of that power, so hmm. to speak, which then uh, that process, greater energy flux density in particular, if you look at like watts per kilogram in terms of energy usage of a reptile, which emerged, you know, very, very long ago as compared to a mammal, the mammal is like 10 times greater. So, so what does that, what does that mean? Like uh, a lizard walking around uses like, what does that mean? Like they yeah, use. No, it's energy more... consumption. It's the same thing. Look, you look at the difference uh -huh. between, uh, you know, the, 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 the economy of Haiti mm -hmm. and the economy of the United States, the energy consumption per capita in Haiti is absolutely abysmal. It's not even measurable by normal, um, you know, by the at the usual means because they don't use electricity in, in large part, and they don't have, they, they burn firewood, you know. They. Well, so, what's so crazy is that the dominant narrative is that that's a good thing that yes. we need to like reduce our energy consumption and throughput and and all these things. That's like the degrowth narrative is that we're consuming too much, but. I, I really like the LaRouche, um, you know, theory. And I think that this is ultimately a Marxist theory, but and this is kind of what the, the video um, and all these conversations that we had last year sort of explored this idea that Marxism uh, initially, you know, was about gr growth and abundance and and more and more <laughs> and, and raising prosperity to higher levels. Whereas somehow in, along the lines in history, the, the Malthusians, yeah. the biggest capitalists that, all, you know, they also happen to be yeah. the biggest capitalists Absolutely. sort of seeded this idea that actually being, you know, Marxist or a leftist or whatever is, is actually about <clears throat> reducing yeah. uh, our foot, our footprint. And that's been like the biggest sort of, script the biggest narrative flip and that seems to be the biggest thing sort of to combat in like when i go on twitter or mm -hmm. just talking to regular people like the, mm -hmm. the biggest the biggest thing to overcome is this idea of like no we need to either stop be it stasis or even roll back which yes starts to seem very fascistic you know that Absolutely. word that word fascism is like thrown around a lot but that that's yeah. seems like what it literally is to me yeah and there's something tied into it too with imperialism that mm -hmm. this belief that let's, let's say if we reorder american society and we massively overhaul everything we put a solar panel on every roof and we're able to to degrow our emissions by 10%, which would be a massive, massive achievement and like require massive amounts of stuff to happen. Yeah. Even if we did that, for that to matter, we'd also have to keep CO2 levels even, mm -hmm. at least for the rest of the world. When the rest of the world, especially in Africa and India, they're just, tr they're trying to burn coal and oil just so they can rate to create a basic standard of living. So like 600 million people in Africa don't have lights. Um, so this idea that like, oh, if, if we just, you know, scrimp and save and turn off the lights and we save, you know, 10% of our emissions and the rest of the world is going to eclipse that by like many, many times. And like, 
it, it's just point. It's, it's just as point. It doesn't make sense. Exercise. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think that's what 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 it offers. What what these you know studies offer is like mm. something that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, I um, you know think think about like the way that people are addressing the question of development. There is so much that needs to be done in the world. Like, forget about it. There's the first of all, there were the world was already in a terrible condition two years ago because you have most, you have a billion people, like you said, 600 million people in Africa. You have a billion people across the world who don't have any electricity at all. We're already in a condition where, you know, why is it that Ebola emerges in Sierra Leone? Is it just because of, you know, of, of the monkeys? It's, it's because they have like one doctor for every 20,000 people. It's because of a continued policy of um, colonialism, of imperialism, of choking nations to death and saying, uh, well, this is just because that's how the market works. Mm-hmm. That's how things, you know, that's how things go. So, you know, I would, I want people to, I'm, what I'm inspired by is the thought of what is it that physically needs to be done in order to provide conditions where every human child can make a contribution to society, hmm. which you can't do. You're robbed of your right to do that if you grow up in the kind of poverty or if you die of starvation, which is what you know is happening in increasing numbers. I think the number of people who are suffering from extreme, extreme hunger has doubled in the past two years. It's now about 47 million. And the Wall Street Journal came out and said, I, I said this in a previous discussion, but it's important that based on their, you know, their, their forecasting that uh, it's possible that food production for, that is necessary for 100 million people could suddenly become you know, unavailable because of the, the nature of the world economy. And that, you know, they're talking about killing humum- humongous numbers of people and then blaming on, on economics. And the same thing is being done uh, on a very, very significant scale. I mean, that's the same process as the green fascism, as the green population reduction um, process policy. It's to say these nations are not allowed to have growth and development. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that strikes me a lot now, and I've sort of been rethinking my relationship with the word, the term fossil fuel, right? Yeah. It's this, it's been, um, you know, very artfully <laughs> vilified. Fossil fuels are, are seen as the ultimate boogeyman, right? And they're, re- they're really just a fuel source. Yeah. Um, and they've actually contributed to a lot of good for a lot of people. Absolutely. And sure, there's truth to the fact that they, they do have consequences of using them to the environment, but we, you know, that's, we're starting, we can replace that with nuclear energy. And, and, you know, when I say that to people and they say, well, what about these other countries that are using fossil fuel? Well, we're going to deny them where we were able to develop to the point where we could get, you know, higher modes of energy, like, like nuclear, but we're going to not let other countries use fossil fuels to like lift themselves themselves up and that is just like insanely cruel (laughs) 
to me. I mean, why would we say, well, it was okay for us to develop from fossil fuels to something yeah. higher, but why are we denying other countries from doing that? And that's like that, that I think was where people hit a wall sometimes. And yeah. it really is like, it doesn't make any sense. There's so many contradictions that add up. Also this idea that we're, that's being pushed that we can replace fossil fuels with renewables. <laughs> and that's another thing that, that this work um, yeah. lays out is how it's, you're replace, you're not replacing it with something that you can replace it with. It's something yeah. that's less energy dense um, and will, will cause like rollback, even more rollbacks yeah. in progress. Yeah. I think, and I think what's been uh, interesting to watch as, as we've gotten to know you is that, it seems like the, the LaRouche uh, school of thought is uh, identifying something that a lot of people are identifying in various ways. But I think the way you guys are um, analyzing the coming crisis of, of green energy is very interesting, very, very different from what I've seen in other places that there's some kind of green bubble coming yeah. that we're, or that we're in already where all the billions and billions of dollars, if, if not more, are being funneled into these green technologies that do not create energy at a commensurate scale for that investment. And that we're, we're funneling money into junk, junk food, basically, oh. for energy. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not going to get the payback where, you know, nuclear plants obviously cost billions of dollars to build but you get a payback in very dense energy that's very reliable for yes. decades. Whereas we're funneling money into something that has all these dimensions where once you build it, you become reliant on praying to the weather. And, and also like all these bonds, I mean, some, at some point someone has to pay for like what these things are going to, produce so i mean can you can you go into that a little bit i know you yeah. talked to paul gallagher recently yeah. uh, about this on twitter on a very interesting twitter space but i mean what what would you say to someone who's just like wondering about like what what could the consequences be and are we on the verge of some kind of yeah. two, 2008 like crisis but but with green energy this time well let me share in a certain sense i mean most people are aware of the idea of the, the great reset at this point most people who are sort of you know, paying attention to something other than mainstream. But then the question is, what is it? And it is not what, um, you know, certain right-wing ideologues would like people to believe or left-wing ideologues who, who, who say, oh, this is a real thing. And the key, the key thing they're trying to do is X. And they come up with some thing that has to do with COVID. And um, that's just not true. Uh, in other words, you have to go and take a look at what was happening in the months prior to COVID, uh, which is that there was a policy coming from the central bankers of the world and the leading figure, the leading major institutions like BlackRock, which is, you know, got it's much wealthier than most countries. It's the largest private asset, asset management firm in the world, they call it. They got together in August of 2019, and they were confronting the fact that their system is based on a financial bubble that is bankrupt. That you know, people 
um, I know that Fox and I are around, around the same age. And we were when when we were coming out of college, there or in college, there was a massive financial crash, right? We we, we remember this. We, and 2008. Yeah. Nothing was done. Yeah. He, people. I mean, I presume that younger people really don't grasp what happened because it was absolutely drastic and caused terrible conditions across the world and in the United States. But nothing was done. Everyone, you know, no one was thrown in jail for it. No bankers. There was, so there's no accountability for creating that crisis. But more to the point, or sort of at, along the same issue, but in terms of what we can do for the future, no structural changes were introduced into the world financial architecture that would ensure that this thing wouldn't happen again. Because much of it can be point, you know, drawn back to uh, the re repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999 which is really a process of financialization of the economy, of creating um, the ability for the world's largest banks to gamble with the deposits, the deposit holders money, right? And this is along a long train that goes back to 1971 when the dollar, uh, when the, the Bretton Woods system came down and the gold reserve standard was abolished and the floating exchange rate began where you have money is tr traded like a commodity, right? As though money has some sort of inherent value. So we've been on this long process of the creation of the everything bubble. And by 2019, you reach a point where there's like $700 trillion at least in derivatives liabilities in the world. And this is according to the Bank of International Settlements, it's public knowledge. $700 trillion. And this stuff means nothing. It's bets on bets on bets. You know, it's completely financial wizardry. It's totally divorced from increases in physical production for the population, improvement in conditions of living. It's totally divorced from physical infrastructure, right? Now, the Chinese in the past 20 years did something different. They went with dirigistic credit, where they're directing credit towards physical productive achievements. But we've been doing the opposite. We've been reducing our manufacturing capability, destroying our infrastructure capability. And so it's in that context that these guys got together in 2019 and said, we've got to somehow, you know, get things back under control for our benefit. And they proposed something called financial regime change where their policy, that's what they called it in their white paper, their policy is that the central bank should dictate the spending, not just the monetary policy, but the spending of nations. Now, why did they need to do that? Because they needed control over the ability to create a new bubble. Hmm. And the, the, law, the rule has been direct everything into this completely upside down, ridiculous, murderous, really, green policy, green technologies, and treat that as the territory for building up a new $30 trillion bubble, at least, to try to save their asses. Why, why do you think that they saw this green, green stuff as uh, the opportunity, for the perfect opportunity for that? That's part of a long organizing effort by Malthusians. With, with the British monarchy being key in that, Prince Charles has been a lead organizer for every one of the COP conferences, the, uh, the uh, you know, the climate conferences over the, since 1992. And um, if you go back to 
the famous, infamous book, um, Limits to Growth, yeah. right? The, the idea from the Club of Rome, the Club yeah. of Rome, I got a nice little quote from them, said in 1972, if the present growth trends in world population, industrialization, pollution, food production, and resource depletion continue unchanged, the limits to growth on this planet will be reached sometime within the next 100 years. So they've been propagandizing on the idea of the limits to growth, on the idea that you can't have business as usual. You hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. And why is it that they have to deal with this now to really try to go into overdrive and punish industrial societies? I think it's primarily because of the rising potentiality defined by China, now China and Russia and other nations that are collaborating on things like the Belt and Road. Because there's an option that countries could choose to go. The financial oligarchy is really threatened by the possibility that Western countries could choose to join that. Right. And um, I'm not super familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative, but it seems like it offers an alternative for countries that for a long time, they're only since the fall of the USSR, their only option for getting outside investment has been to work on the terms of the World Bank and uh, NATO and all that stuff. Uh, for example, Argentina, I know that they're they're now a Belt and Road country. So like, what what does that mean? What kind of uh, alternative does that offer to the developing world um, that China and Russia are kind of potential partners versus the the West that you know that we know? Well, I mean, first of all, it's not um, they're not going to they're not going to say we won't work with you if you be, you know if if we disagree with your policies your your domestic policies or something like that. The, the, the Belt and Road represents a potential. You know, it is an expression of the same strategy that LaRouche proposed back in the 1990s. This is, I'm holding a, a, a book from 1997 called The Eurasian Land Bridge, The New Silk Road Locomotive for Worldwide Economic Development. The, the, the policy is increases in development corridors that you take a a territory like Eurasia, not just some nation, but you can do it within a nation, you need to as well. And you build up transportation, you build up power systems, nuclear, and then fusion eventually, uh, fission and then then fusion. Uh, You build up water systems, and this creates a higher platform of activity for your economy. It creates the basis for the potential to do things that you couldn't possibly have done before. And that's economy, not money. Mm. But the World Bank says it's about money. You know, I'll give you one example. Haiti, they have a proposal from China Power, which is like the biggest construction company in the world. I believe it's China Power uh, that says we're could, we could come into Port-au-Prince and we could modernize it. We can spend we can we could figure out four and a four point two billion dollars to do this. Okay, we could figure this out. The IMF blocked it a few years ago and said, you can't take on any more debt because you owe us debt. So it's, it's about the debt above the IMF is about money. It's about control. It's about mm. choking people to death. But the Chinese credit, the Chinese loans are about productivity. 
And that's the distinction. Yeah. That makes sense. If you look at it, like if you look at the map and like the interconnectedness of the human race, you know, it's almost like yeah. we're energizing the human race. If you think of like people as like little energetic atoms, just moving around more to create more energy. And that's like a, a good thing. That's product productivity and growth. And that's real. That's not like, like what you're just saying, like money, that's yeah. sort of like made up. How would you uh, how would you juxtapose the idea of um, the World Land Bridge or this this greater building of infrastructure between nations? How would you juxtapose that against what some people would be afraid of? You know, the fear mongering about um, when people talk about open borders, like in, oh, in yeah. the in the liberal sense, mm-hmm. open borders represent like well, what you're doing is creating uh, an open market for you know minimum wage workers to shuffle back and forth between countries and kind of, Hmm. um, you know, be exploited, but also like uh, take away the potential for people that live in that country already to, you know, make a living. So how would you, how would you juxtapose, you know, how that is different from the land bridge and like having the, you know, it sounds, it sounds like it's the difference is that we're building a massive amount of infrastructure that would benefit uh, everybody. But I mean, how would you frame that? Well, um, it is not possible to do anything like this without national sovereignty. It's just not possible because, you know, we're living in a world where only a handful of countries have national sovereignty. Hmm. Most countries can't make decisions for themselves at all. You know, the, the, the things that they get allowed to do are minor. Because there's money power that's sitting on top of them, which is supranational. It is the continuation today of the British Empire. And it's Cayman Islands. You know, it's all the hidden money. There's a very good book called um, Treasure Islands that's by a guy named Nicholas Shackson. That's about the way that Africa is actually a um, not a debtor continent. You would think that all of the countries, oh, they borrowed so much money. You know, uh, oh, they must be massively in debt. They've actually put out more money than they've received through the international, um, you know, dark money of the uh, offshore banking system because it comes in through an IMF loan and it immediately gets sucked back out and into the European banks and under the offshore banks. It's um, described also in that book, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Hmm. So... If you allow that to continue, then we'll never have any growth and we're just going to have war and disease and poverty. But if we have national sovereignty, then it means that a nation is able to assert its right to control its own credit, to control its own finances, which is something that our nation was founded on. That's what it's in Article 1, Section 8 that, that the, in the U.S. Constitution that the Congress can control the credit. We know. The fact that we have a Federal Reserve is completely unconstitutional. It's ridiculous and wrong. It's mm-hmm. been that way the whole time. We should have control over our banking. Yeah. So you would say that national sovereignty would be the solution to those fears of people. You know, if, if people in Nicaragua had national sovereignty, then they wouldn't, it wouldn't be such an attractive option to illegally immigrate into the United States. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean... Yeah, you want to create, we want to create a condition where there's 
such incredible development happening throughout Latin America, for example, or Ibero-America generally, that that no one no one would want to leave. That everyone is going to be committed to the national mission. You know, then then you have you have something. I mean, the co cooperation, collaboration, the idea of the one mankind. It if you do it in the proper way, if you're doing it from the standpoint of progress and development, then that's where there can be, you know, the diversity of thought, diversity of civilizations, a dialogue of different cultures. It's as soon as people come in and say, put a lid on it, shut it down, put it in stasis, that then, you know, there's nothing going on. There's no, there's no possibility for civilizations to flourish. And, uh, and you get that kind of situation. Yeah, I think, well, I think in like what you, what some people might call Western countries like the US or Canada or whatever, um, is that there's like a limited perspective on what, what the potential is. People don't even see like national sovereignty as like, and statecraft as like an option. They kind of see yeah. capitalism and you know the corp corporatocracy or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. as the only possible reality. Yes, I really agree. That's a huge problem that people people don't have the imagination. I mean, like, what have we grown up with? Yeah, our whole lives have been a matter of just look at the lines. The line for percentage of of uh, of U.S. Man of jobs that are manufacturing. Our whole lives it's been plummeting. Lines go like, down. Yeah, so people don't. <laughs> They don't think about, they don't have enough imagination, which is part of why the anti-China campaign is so important to these guys. Mm. Because if people uh, go to China, then they kind of come back and say, what the hell is going on here? This is insane. Yeah. God, I want to go to China. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've been there <laughs> but for about 24 hours. So. Yeah. No, I know. It's, it's, it, it's interesting. To, and I, it makes me think of like Mark Fisher and, and his book about capitalist realism and how that kind of, I think it was a good book, but I think it kind of put a spin on everyone's imagination where they can't, they're like, there is no way out. Mm. And it's very limiting. And I see a lot of people who've been, who got like really excited and energized by Bernie, but then realized like, oh, this is actually not not the salvation we thought it was and people just getting utterly crushed by that. And there's a sort of, I think with our generation and younger millennials and younger, maybe that just are, there's this pessimism that just, we don't like a lot of people think there is no potential. There is nothing outside of what exists now that's presented to us. And it's really hard to pierce through that because when people do show a little bit of like, oh, you know, hope or whatever potential <laughs> they're taken advantage of. And then their reaction is to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm never going to put myself out there ever again, because it just turns out to be like a trick or a pyramid scheme, or I'm just going to get duped again. And that, that just seems like this huge thing to overcome, right. It's yeah. like being stuck in, in this like left, right paradigm, you yes. know, talking about like, okay, well, these are the less, these guys are the lesser of two evils. Every, every time, every few years that switches, now it's the left, now it's the right, now it's the left. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, on the other hand, that can be a big source of change because 
I used to be an environmentalist, mm. you know, when I was like 22, 23, I had a classmate from high school who was like trying to recruit me to really take this seriously, which is very, of course, everyone can sympathize with these young kids who are getting, who are getting into this because right. you look around the world and you're like, things are in terrible condition. Something is going wrong. And then yes. someone tells you, I know exactly what it is. It's CO2 or it's whatever, right. uh, growth, it's growth, right. it's human <laughs> beings. Right. And you're like, and you're, you're brought in a little bit, you know, you're, you're, you're saying, well, I knew there was something, I guess this is it. But then there's never any effort to actually challenge and, and figure out and understand what's going on. Basically, when I was, um, I went through two experiences that were very formative for me. One was that, is that I eventually, after I started like proselytizing to my family and so forth, <laughs> then I said to myself, well, you know, I should probably know what the other, what other side says. I should probably know what people say who say this isn't a problem. And I started to read and I started to pay attention. And then I found that I was becoming recruited to it. I found that I, <laughs> you know, that I, that the arguments were very convincing. And, uh, and I started to say, oh my God, I've been duped. <laughs> and the same thing happened. I was a school teacher and uh, I was, I was duped into the idea of um, charter schools being literally, they told me charter schools, this is the civil rights movement of, of today. And so I went and I joined a charter school in New Orleans. And then I realized that I had actually been brought in to break the union. And wow. I didn't, I didn't even know that until, you know, I started going to union meetings because I was interested to see what was going on, even though I was in a charter school that was not unionized because they're, they're not generally, they weren't at that time. Hmm. So when I realized I had been duped, hmm. then I got, you know, a fire under my ass and I, hmm. and I decided to figure things out for myself. Yeah. That's like, that's what you got to do. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, and it's hard too. It's hard because constantly you're going to be like having to question things and it's a really rigorous process to constantly question what you, you consider, you know, sort of a foundation of like, okay, I, these are things that are facts. Right. But it's so important. And I think forgiveness is a really important thing too. Yes. forgiving yourself yes. and forgiving other people yes. because like no, nobody's going to be innocent in, in, in any of this. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as like, Oh, I was never part of anything of, you know, we're all used against our own will um, for this stuff. Cause if we weren't, we wouldn't have these problems. And the whole point is that we all got, have to just kind of wake up to it and like, just, use our own brains to just kind of say okay well i this is what i believe but let me let me try to listen to what the critics of this say and take in both sides and synthesize my own position on this yeah. i i just want to say i think that's a very important point because of course when you're in the environmentalist you know the radical environmentalist mode there's no such thing as forgiveness hmm. Right, because the presumption is the world is going into heat death anyway. There's no meaning, and mm. then you know, basically, the cosmology is uh, Satan rules the universe. It's a bad universe. Everything's bad. Humanity is bad, and therefore, there's no room for forgiveness or for you know, true compassion and love for other people. And that's that's how they can come to these conclusions. Like, well, you know, they're just We're gonna, gonna die. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it relates to the idea of uh natalism too that mm. um i hear i hear uh, you can see you can find it on twitter easily but like people 
that have this ideology who are like, I could never imagine bringing a child into the world. Mm -hmm. Everything's so bad. It's like, just look at human history. What if, what if everyone said that during world war two? Yeah. What if everyone said that during the, the plague or during the black death or anything yeah. uh, like people have always found a way to overcome the obstacles placed in front of them and people continue to have always continued to, you know, uh, reproduce and build lives and work, work together and fail and try again. I mean, that is the, that is, that is what it is to be human. I mean, yes, but uh, there's, you know, it's so, it's so easy for many people to give up and uh, uh, you know, we, we just have to keep, keep trying to convince them and hope that some of them will be open-minded that uh, you know, maybe in six to eight years, like for example, the director of don't look up was just tweeting mm about how you know we're on the verge of a biblical catastrophe but we're all like we're all just pretending like everything's fine and in six to eight years that the world will be cooked beyond belief it's like you know when we get six to eight years down the road he's going to say oh in 10 to 12 years you know, like, <laughs> we're still going to be here we're still going to be alive we still have to try you know i mean um he he's saying that meanwhile there is a famine of biblical proportions happening right now Mm. I mean, there yeah. is vicious starvation and the inflation, the hyperinflation that's being caused by this central banker policy of the past several years uh, is causing the price of a tortilla, the price of, you know, just normal staples for any person in the world to skyrocket. And that is causing mass misery. And these guys, you know, they don't think about things like that because, Fundamentally, you know, if you if you believe in Malthusianism, then you'll say, well, you know, it's really bad for it's too bad for them. But on the other hand, at least there are fewer people around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also they'll they'll care more about the planet and people. Yeah, like I've I've been encountering this from in, engaging in these conversations on Twitter, which I feel I feel like dumb for having participated, <laughs> but I also feel like I'm learning something about mm -hmm. people's mentality, but to see people saying like, like, when we bring up the points that we're all talking about, people will say, well, you know, even if we, if, if everyone gets rid of their car, then, you know, at least we'll be um, doing our part. And, you know, we can't control if the people in Africa don't care that they cook the planet. And it's like the people in Africa are not thinking about yeah. cooking the planet. They're, they're saying we want to live. We yeah, want yeah. to survive mm -hmm. the conditions we have now. We want to have food for everybody. We want to have lights. We want to have roads. We want to have hospitals. Uh, and, you know, this, this idea, like going back to the director of Don't Look Up, like he's more obsessed about the planet than about the people living on the planet. Mm -hmm. And like, we need to like address that first. And then, you know, and, and the planet part will take care of itself if we're like truly addressing the needs of, of the people. So here's where here's something I'm, I'm, I'd like to share with you, which is that I um, I totally agree with you. And the only really good example that I see in 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 history of what it is that we need to do is the change from the Dark Ages into the European Renaissance in the 1400s. It's I mean to put it briefly, that the people who started the Renaissance they were roaming around the total ruins of mm -hmm. Rome. I was really astonished when I learned that 
Rome today has like three or four million people. And back in 100 AD, it had, um, it had a million people living in Rome. By the 1400s, by like 1420 or something like that, it was down to around 50,000 people. Hmm. Now that is a green society. <laughs> and oh, it God. is, right? And what did they do? The, 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 the Romans forbid the use of technology. Hmm. For example, the, the water wheel had been invented by the Etruscans hundreds of years prior. Um, and it's an extremely useful technology, right? In fact, right, it's not that, uh, or like, you can look at some of the windmill technology and realize it's basically the same thing, huh. but the, uh, it's extremely useful. But the Romans said, no, you have to use human power. Hmm. And so they said- This only was post-Caesar, post right? Like after they killed yes, Caesar. Right, and, and so the policy of the empire was to say, you can't, uh, you can't use technology, it's not allowed. Um, it's too expensive. They said that, which you hear all the time, right? From people who are monetarists who believe that money is valuable. And um, anyway, this is how we do things. So then the Renaissance comes and what's happening is an overturning of the fundamental presumptions about civilization and about humanity. And you have an advancement of the understanding that man is in the living image of God one way of putting it, very, very powerful, important way of putting it, in my view, mm. uh, that there is a creative power in human, in a human individual to make discoveries of principle. Uh, and this is what's most important about man, which is true. The willful make discovery of new universal principles is something that only human beings do. Nothing else does it. Mm -hmm. And that, the idea that that is the most beautiful and noble and truthful characteristic of mankind is the basis for a republic, you know, for the system mm. of nation states that come after. Because otherwise, you have the view, like a Zeus, that their human beings are just sort of creatures like apes or something like that. And Therefore, it's perfectly rational for a small group of us who have more power to control everyone who doesn't have power, which is oligarchism, right? Yeah. It's perfect. So that was the basis for governmental systems prior to this shift. And what my view is that we need, we need the same kind of revival of an understanding of the power of that creative human mind. You know, Daniel, I was hoping you'd bring this up because... Um... In our like deindustrializing society, I feel like uh, the arts have been used to replace industry. Like you look at uh, factories, you know, shut down factories. They're, they get turned into artist lofts. And uh, can you can you expand on that a little bit about how we're not in the Renaissance right now? Like, mm -mm. and the, the arts have been something about the along the way. Something about the arts have been stripped from that that greater meaning that, uh, that you're alluding to. I mean, what do you think about that? Just that a general trend that like the arts today, like people look at, like talk about the creative economy. Like it, now that we're in this economy where we don't produce anything in the material world and people are like trying to use the arts to like replace, literally replace factories in these like deindustrialized towns. Like, what do you think about that? It's really sadistic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like if you, 
there's first of all, there's just the straightforward fact that almost all media that people are consuming, a good 98% of it is um, cultural programming coming from, you know, the, 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 the Obamas or the, or the, you know, what I mean, like the, the neoliberal centers of yeah. power. Literally whatever. the Obamas. Yeah, exactly. Literally the Obamas. And, in the case and, of Edward, Bernays, and Edward Bernays' grandson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a really good find. And, but it's typical, right? That's, so that's just the fact of the matter. But the more abusive feature is that we have the belief that art is something that's interesting and not what's beautiful and provides access to the individual, to their own creative potential. Hmm. You need to be sort of, the senses, the beautiful experience. I mean, I'm, I'm reading Schiller with a group of people right now and we're reading his pieces uh, on, on grace and dignity right now, Friedrich Schiller. And he's trying to relate, make a, a clear the relationship between beauty and reason. Hmm. That when we encounter beauty in the natural world or in the human, you know, in our human society and the relationship between humans, and to, uh, for example, what we find in that is something that speaks to our reason that we can see that there is something creative in the universe. It's not something that you can see merely with your eyes, but it's something beyond sort of between the notes that expresses this kind of characteristic of growth and development of you know, the lawful unfolding of the universe. Mm. And that you take that, and if you can take that and find it in yourself, in your, you notice that, oh, it's my own mind that's doing that. My mind is participating in this process. Then you can awaken your own ability, which he refers to as the sublime. It'll help you to develop your understanding of the sublime, which is to say your own ability when confronted with an ugly world to demand that it become beautiful. Wow. So his view, yeah, it's really, it's very moving. And we just read also on the sublime, which is even more crucial in this respect, that great art is there to give us an opportunity to sort of rehearse in our own mind the kind of creative thinking, the daring, the, he says, dare to be wise, the daring wisdom of seeing something that must be created in the future that does not exist now. That's See, pretty, a pretty incredible way to put it. I like that. This ordering, you know, out of chaos is this, you know, because I, I remember the, the bread tube people kind of came out with this idea that like, as a reaction from like the right, that there is no such thing as objective beauty, right? The, yes. the, the right wing came up with this idea that, oh, art is in decline and that's a sign of, you know, bad things that we need to return or whatever. And, yeah. and the left was like, no, there's no such thing as objective beauty and everything, you can find beauty in anything. And it, it, it really, uh, n neither of those things ring true really. Yeah. Um, but this idea of like, because I, I mean, so I'm, I'm a person who comes from a, an art and design background and what I like to do, the way I describe what I like to do is I like to organize things in mm. a way that makes sense, you know, bring order from chaos. I think that's like what good design does is it, mm. 
and and there is like object there is like an objective beauty to things when they are laid out in almost I, almost like the right way i don't know how to say mm. it you know like it what i right? do know it's like can shoot. like there's things like the golden ratio yes like that yeah where or there's gestalt design principles mm. of just symmetry and balance things like that and i'm like those things are kind of like objectively there's something objective about them, you know? And like, how can we deny that there is something objectively beautiful about things that are laid out in such a way, but we could, we could go off into that tangent for a long time. Oh, it's a know. good tangent yeah. to go on. Let me make a quick response, which is that, um, you know, the point is that this higher principle of creativity that is a, this, that causes, it's the cause of this increasing capability of human society. It's the cause of this increasing energy to flux density in the biosphere, in living things. It's the cause of the unfolding of the universe. Uh, that's something you cannot capture. You cannot touch it with your senses. Hmm. You cannot have a sense, certain experience of or that. measure it or something. Yeah, you, well, that's the question. Hmm. Can you measure it? LaRouche's whole economics is about discovering a way to measure hmm creative, the, the effect of creative technological scientific breakthroughs on your economy. Hmm. But you can't measure it in such way that you're using your sensorium to measure it. And art, I believe, if it train, if it, if it expresses the freedom of when, when something expresses the freedom of its own character, then you see its beauty, you see that it is in fact ordered. Hmm. You know, you'd find that it, it actually had that character all along. And now you can see it unfolded in the universe and it becomes very beautiful. Um, that to understand that characteristic allows us to see what's controlling it. What is causing that unfolding, which you cannot see with your eyes. You have to see it with your mind. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I feel like we got off track. Alex is like, thinking no, no. Of <laughs> that's, that's great. I was just going to say, like, you're, you're a big Roosevelt guy. So, like, what would you yeah. characterize, like, the WPA art projects um, in oh. kind of this framework? I mean, do you think that that's, that's evocative of that? Or do you think that that was more just, like, propaganda? But there's just an aspirational quality to it that uh, I think has, has made it resonate with people. What do you think, though? I don't I know we, anything about art, so I don't know. Uh, I think we need a um, – I think we need a National Conservatory of the Arts. I think we need – a lot of national finance funding towards the arts, but it should be things that are actually um, of a classical mode. That's my view. And um, what I mean when I say when I when I say that I'm talking about the so the whole process that I was just referring to. That's my understanding of classical culture, in super brief. Um, but look at the great contributions that are of that quality that really intend to uplift humanity, uplift your own, the individual to the level of, you know, eternity of immortal or the, the, the sense of their own universal humanity. I think that um, the, the spirituals, the African-American spirituals are one of the greatest American contributions to that kind of universal process. And um, these are dying largely. You know, there, I mean, there are people who are keeping them alive and they're doing, and it's very important what they're doing. But that should be a gift to people 
when they're young. You, so this might, you learn about Benjamin Franklin and it's a gift to you that, oh, this is who I am too. And in some part, I my existence depends upon these wonderful ideas from this guy. And that should be understandable in music too. Um, you know, in China, they have something like 40 or 60 million children are learning how to play the violin. Hmm. It may be more than that, maybe a hundred million. I think it's 40 or 60, somewhere in that range. There's a, uh, there are concert houses that, uh, for orchestras in many, many of the cities across China. Uh, there's a love of classical music. And we could revive that in the United States. It shouldn't be that if you want to go see an opera, you have to pay, you know, $400 and go to see it at the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah. It should be, you know, it shouldn't be a class thing. It should be available to everyone. So I think you could do that. There are various ways to do that. That would, that would actually work. Um, but it does mean, I heard your conversation with Caleb about the CCF. He didn't Congress quite go into it. Freedom. Yeah, the Congress of Cultural Freedom included mm -hmm. an effort to get Americans hooked on atonal music mm. and, you know, just this kind of modern music. People think it's classical because it uses pianos and stuff, but it's not. It's totally. What's a good example of that? Um, the Rite of Spring, the Rites of, Rite of Spring. Um, yeah, I, my, actually my grandfather who was in World War II, he went to see this by Stravinsky at a CCF concert when he got back from World War II. Because CCF, the Congress of Cultural Freedom organized a ton of concerts across the uh, United States and introduced people to this kind of music that is orgiastic, that kind of like, you know, that kind of like builds and builds and builds yeah, and yeah. builds, right? And then it all comes crashing down. And yeah, yeah. That's supposed to be. Well, you're talking about like the drop at an EDM concert, right? Yeah. It's like TikTok, or, or, right? Or the Pixies. I yeah. think a lot of people oh. classified the Pixies as like quiet and loud and quiet and loud. Yeah. I really like the Pixies though. So I don't. I grew up loving them too. Yeah. I'm probably like a simpleton who likes all kinds of like. <laughs> stuff but <laughs> what'd you what'd you think about daniel uh did you i don't know if you saw any kind of the, the theorizing about like travis scott after oh, yeah. that concert and uh the demonic the demonic nature of like mm -hmm. of the actual music oh my god well i think that's straightforward like obviously it is demonic it is like <laughs> yeah. explicitly satanic and people pick that up because it's been a part of the programming for a long time. It's been a part of the, it's an expression of the Gaia worship. That's my view is mm. that the way that there's a cultural attack, there's an economic attack. They're the same thing. If you can get the young people, the youth of a society to basically um, destroy their own mental capability by engaging in the kind of thing that um, is addictive because it creates these highs and lows, mm. but um, thereby, you know, prevents you from concentrating on a creative idea. Um, then that's what they're trying to do. That's, that's what I, the conclusion that I came to about popular culture generally. And that's why I mentioned TikTok yeah. a moment ago, because 
you know, that's what it does, right? Is to try to get you completely hooked on mm. a micro kind of up and down. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that makes perfect sense. This like addiction loop, you know, a lot of people just think addiction is just drugs, just a chemical, but it's anything that can like kind of disrupt the signals in your brain. Right. So like looking at social media or any, you're right. Any, these like low lows of feeling like, oh, the world's going to end and I'm so sad. And then this pop of like, oh, but I have all this manic energy now and these like yeah. ups and downs. And if you know anybody with like a manic personality disorder, mm. or if you've like experienced it yourself, you, you know that it's, it is like an addictive feeling. And I think that you're right. That's a, that is a way to really control the masses is through this, these addictive loops, whether it be gambling, drugs, art theory, you know, any kind of like this addictive stuff. You know, it's strange too that uh, I have to learn more about this, but like TikTok is a Chinese company and I know China, like they've, they've done some steps to limit the amount of gaming that the youth do. And they've referred to gaming as like the new opium, like internet cafes or the new opium dens. Um, I'm, I don't know enough about like what they're doing with TikTok. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is like a, I think it surpassed Google for like how much time people spend on it now. Um, so I, I'm curious, like what, if anything, they're doing to restrict the use of it or how they see it. Uh, I think China. that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I hope they shut it down. And I, <laughs> I, um, I had a very interesting conversation with my friend, Richard Black, who is sort of represents the, the Schiller Institute to UN missions. And um, he's done a very serious study of the Chinese policy of aesthetical education, the education in, you know, in beauty. Um, and over the past several years, they have significantly shifted their policy, which is expressed partly in what you're describing. And a lot of people cheered that and it's good, but it's also the fact that they're committing a larger percentage of their GDP to the arts and uh, to the art, arts education. And they're having a conversation about, for example, Xi Jinping talking to leading people at major universities about the idea that the purpose of education, that the reason you need aesthetical education in the sense of beauty is that the purpose of, the ed of education is the improvement of the character. Hmm. Whereas what we have in, you know, inculcated in, in the United States for over a hundred years, as opposed to where we used to be, this is a Schillerian idea of aesthetical education. And if you go to any city across the country, you'll see statues of Schiller. There's a lot of them in New York state because he was extremely popular in the 1800s. But then now we have outcome-based education or merely education that's for like skills, right? And so you do not have that same kind of belief that the purpose of education is to develop the moral character. Hmm. You know, it's, it's uh, almost cruel to think about too, because people, when you hear people talking about the need to reform or improve education in the United States, it's to keep up with China. And like when people are proposing all these kinds of, you know, whether it was Bush with uh, no child left behind or rise, I think it was rise to the top with Obama. It's all about outcomes-based education yeah. where to catch up with China, where they're doing more of this kind of, uh, you know, art, aesthetic arts, beauty kind of thing that you're talking about. I mean, not everything's perfect in China. They've got a bunch of problems here in this regard. And there's, 
they're trying to deal with them because they have, you know, when you get really wealthy really quickly, of course, you're going to have a bunch of young people who are materialistic, which they do. Um, But this shows that they're responding to that. And, um, and I don't think that you can really have a breakthrough in your economy without this kind of approach, because you need people who can think about fundamental principles and that's my view is that this type of this real kind of classical art supports that or is that in fact um famously einstein used to when he came across an extremely difficult problem in physics he would play his violin hmm. and that was part of the way that his mind unfolded the problem you know and he came to a discovery i i suffer from this twitter addiction myself because <laughs> you're right because um, as you guys know, I'm extremely active. Um, there are people who are more active than me, but it's the kind of thing I can do, even though I have a job, you know, I can, cause I have yeah. in between periods where I'm working, where I can do that kind of thing. And, uh, and I found that I was getting an effect and man, I just, I still have difficulty with, with, mm. you know, controlling my use of Twitter and so forth and not just Twitter, my phone generally. Um, but what, you know, what we're going to have to figure out how to do in this bizarre society that we live in now is to increasingly create this kind of relationship to each other where we can recognize the humanity in the other person mm. and say, this is the most important element of our relationship. And that's sort of what I think it would help if all of the people who listen to Caleb shut off Minecraft for their, the rest <laughs> of their lives, then they would, they would actually, they think that that helps them connect to people, mm. but uh, my view is that it doesn't, that it actually tends to make you think that everyone else is sort of in your own virtual reality and it's some yeah. sort of, you know, pixels on your own screen. And we need to get out of that and get into real reality. Yes, I love real reality. <laughs> I think I said this to somebody recently. I was like, I love real reality. I, I said it to Peter. Yeah, because we were talking, it's like, you know, I've, I've actually had a long history of meeting people off the internet. And I know it's, that's kind of a weird thing, but I, lo- I like the internet a lot for being able to connect with people, yeah. which, you know, that's how I met you, Daniel. And yeah. I, I'm like super grateful to, but Me too. at the same time, you have to like be careful because these, these things are built for addiction and you, you just have to be, keep that in mind and get what you can out of them but then bring it to the real world. That's why it's, it's so great to like meet people off the internet and say like, Oh my God, you're like a, you're like a human being with like cells and like, but hair. This is how tall you are. <laughs> yeah. This is how tall you are. Uh, and making like eye contact with people. Yeah. Like that, that sounds creepy and weird, but it's like <laughs> seeing somebody as like a, you know, a real person, like that's, that's important. And, uh, yeah, I encourage it. I don't know. I see a lot. There's a lot of people who are kind of anonymous on the on the internet, I know. and I don't want to like totally blame them for it because it, it can be scary. Yeah. But I also I really like the fact that I'm not really anonymous on it because I I don't have anything to hide. You know, yes, I am who I am, and I think that more people should be like that. We do live in a surveillance security state, which is scary, but you know at the end of the day, there's, there's more of us, you know, and, and yes. we, we need to be, you know, sort of open about who we are, say like, the, I, yes, I'm a person who exists and you are a person who exists. And we're not just like these anonymous ideas floating in space. 
that are disconnected from human beings. The way that you guys have taken on Peter Buffett is really emblematic of that. I mean, it's a, it's a manifestation of that kind of thinking because he's just that person, you know, he's right. And you're willing to say, I have authority over you because of, because I'm a person and not because I have as much money as you or something like that. Yeah. Well, you can't do that if you're anonymous. Hmm? No, you can't. It's been wild too. He just is, he really is just a person in our community. You know, we've seen him on Facebook interacting in like local groups for years and he, he is just another person in our community. But, and I think almost to a degree, that's how people in our community treat him as if he is just another person, but he's, he also has a tremendous amount of power and he's, orchestrating things and he shouldn't be treated just like any other person i mean he is another person but he's also a person with he's a he's a prince he's he's royalty (laughs) so part of like part of the underlying thought of the malthusian outlook is the assumption that the universe is entropic and i would sort of ask whether that is true like if like entropic meaning like it's decaying it's, it's yes it's like uh what's the word um not collapsing but although that is the word they like to so use becoming more disordered dissipating yeah right because that's a fundamental presumption of these people yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. that therefore that's what i mean when i say that they think that the world is, is run by satan because they think that that's you know, the world is like an, is a relatively evil place hmm. and, uh, and it's, it's falling apart. Things fall apart, right? That kind of, that it's kind of decaying. Thought. Yeah. Right. So is that true? Or another way of putting it is the universe is the law of second is the second law of thermodynamics about the conservation of energy. Is that, is that universally applicable? Mm. Is it, you know, that there's never going to be, that there's never going to be more energy available to mankind than what exists presently. Mm. So, well, if you, when they first came up with the second law of thermodynamics, it refers to closed systems, uh, heat engines. But then people began to say, like, I think Lord Kelvin, that this is characteristic of the universe. And that's where you get this meme, right? That the, uh, that the universe is going into heat death, hmm. which is, uh, you often hear people talk about that when they're talking about sort of their own nihilism. Well, there's nothing, there's no meaning anyway. Everything's just going to fall apart anyway. Yeah. And, um, well, maybe things will be better for another, you know, a couple thousand years, but then eventually. Or people who say, well, the, you know, the human race is going to go extinct. It's all the same kind of thinking. But if you were to have measured all of the energy in the world in like the 1880s or 1890s, then you would have excluded all of the, I mean, not only like the the undiscovered oil fields, forget that, Um, but you would have excluded the energy that's tied up in every atom. Because until Einstein makes his discovery of the uh, of um, uh, e equals mc squared, right, of the relationship there the, um, between energy and matter, then no one knew about nuclear science, and so no one knew that that's the energy that we had available to mankind, or that it could become available to mankind. 
And so your judgment would have been completely false. Mm. And obviously the same is true today that the discoveries of the future are in the future. And so we do not yet know the, you know, the, the, the next stage. We know some of the next stages. We know fusion is on the way. There's been big breakthroughs in that recently at Lawrence Livermore uh, and um, laboratories and also in China. And, um, but we don't know. And so, you know, it's, I think it's really important to figure out what are the underlying presumptions that people have that cause them to come to these conclusions. Yeah, I don't, I don't know enough to answer the question. I guess it's more of a <laughs> philosophical question than a scientific one, right? No, it's scientific because mm. you can see it also in the case of how is it that, that if it were the case that everything were limited um, by nature, if the universe were simply you know, a closed system, then you also wouldn't have this characteristic of evolution that it goes up, mm. that it's increasingly energy dense and so forth. I think there's, there's no end to science. There's not some yeah. like final point. We're not going to get to the end of the journey and say, you know, that's it. Although there were people, basically, if you look at Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, he tried to convince people that that was the case in the mm. early 1900s, around 1900 to 1920 or something is when he was really working on this idea in that all of human knowledge could be systematized and reduced to logic. And that was that close the book. It's done. Well, it just seems like an arrogant, very arrogant notion to say, oh, I am it. This is, I have arrived at the end. <laughs> like, what are the chances? <laughs> it's like insane. He was also a leading Malthusian. Yeah. He, he, you know, he, and, uh, and he's even the guy who said, he's the guy who, okay, here's, here's, a, here's a place to, to take this, is that he's the guy who said that um, in order to, after the World, World War II, in order to establish a world government without sovereign nation states, a world government to keep the peace, uh, we need to use nuclear weapons. This is before the Russians had developed, the Soviets had developed nuclear weapons. We need to use nuclear weapons to threaten every major country, especially the Soviet Union, to accept a world government. Wow. And he was interviewed later about this. And he said, like 10 years later, and he said, no, I really meant that. And, uh, and we would hope that they would listen to reason and assent to our demands. Um, but if you, you never make a threat unless you're willing to follow through. Wow. So this kind of, you know, anything to put the world into stasis, to shut yeah. down, you know, cooperation between countries. Thankfully, the Soviets developed the Tsar Bomba. And, uh, you know, they, they, that was no longer a situation they were under, you know, that kind of threat. But um, that's the kind of thinking I think we're up against. Well, yeah, and I think this comes back to this, the, this narrative that's been flipped. And I think most people don't agree with when you put it that way. But what there's a, a large layer of people near the top who make careers out of flipping these scripts. And that's how you see people like Jason Hickel and the degrowth people um, who sort of just flip that. And, you know, I've, I've gotten into big arguments with bike people on Twitter yeah, who like say, it. well, don't you want to grow infrastructure and gro bike lanes mean growth? Are you anti-growth? And I'm like, you know, thinking about it energetically, 
with this energy flux, you know, thing now I'm like, okay, that's the perfect argument, right? Because actually bikes are decrease in energy. You are lowering the energy. So it's not like it's that I think, and that's where the script, the script, the narrative gets really contorted and the logic gets twisted up for people. They're saying, oh, you don't want to bike lanes are a growth to our infrastructure. And it's like, no, they're actually making it harder for people to get around and cars are good are much better at helping human beings get around and then they say oh you're a toxic car person and <laughs> it's the same with like clogging you know continuing to clog up uh roads in new york city with uh the, the sidewalk cafes and whatnot oh you know uh like the idea of keeping those even after after like any like scientific you know, public health case can even be made anymore. Like people, people are like, well, we should keep it. It's a good thing. Less cars, less uh, yeah. trucks going through it. it, slows everything down, you know, and that's not what we should be aspiring to. No, I think we need 30,000. No, was it 40,000? Actually, it's like, I, I think we can handle 30 to 40,000 new miles of, of trains, uh, of high-speed trains in the United States. And uh, we have a plan for that. Uh, and I think we should have 42 new nuclear power plants immediately that will also operate to desalinate the rivers, to clean up the pollution in the rivers. And uh, we should connect this high-speed rail system across the Bering Strait with the Bering Strait Tunnel to the Belt and Road Initiative. And, um, you know, we could do all of this if we had a national bank and if we put back Glass-Steagall, we can do it. So that's, that's, that's my outlook. You sold me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to learn more about glass steel, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's the, the end goal, right? Is it, that would be great to build more infrastructure, more energy, more. Yeah. Not, less is then go less out. is less, less is not more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or what's that? If, <laughs> if less is more then think about how much more, more could be. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a whole solar system out there, you know, okay. Here's a really good way. Uh, to I don't want to keep going on too much, but I want to share just a couple, <laughs> one more thought that really, I think, crystallizes this. People who say there are limits to growth, just look up. <laughs> as far as we know, there are two trillion galaxies. Huh? So you can have like a billion galaxies for yourself. It's fine. You can have those. <laughs> and and we'll that. develop the other ones. You can keep those as your pristine wilderness <laughs> observation and we'll deal with the other ones. We'll, you know, there's we'll, just... We'll yeah. send them to the Avatar planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can live, they can live with the, the, uh, the Navi. Oh my God. That's so funny. Yeah. We recently rewatched that. Uh, I oh, think yeah. Fox hadn't seen it, but uh, I saw it when it came out, and <laughs> it was striking how how uh, Malthusian it was and how anti-human it was. I mean, the humans are the bad guys, you know. Of course. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. There's such an interesting perspective in here about decoupling uh, GDP from measuring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how well an economy is doing. And that's funny because that's very, very close to what it's actually the same as what the degrowth people say because mm -hmm. they want to decouple GDP, right. but they, they're taking a different tack on it. Um, they're saying. Yeah. And what they're not realizing is that like G we, GDP for us means like the fire economy where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, finance, insurance, real estate, where we're not actually 
producing anything. It's just like reshuffling stuff that already exists or stuff that doesn't even exist. Well, um, uh, I mean, to, to make this, okay, first of all, again, China's already done it. All right, and this is a big reason why they are the target and why we've got the increasing danger of war with China and Russia is because they've already gone into a physical economic mode of, of studying their economy. So Li Qichang, who's the premier right now, um, years ago, not that long ago, he was the head of a province, I forget which one, a large province, and he specifically said, don't give me GDP, those are made up numbers. <laughs> he said, I wanna know the amount of rail tonnage. I wanna know the new loans from banks, the new loans that are going out into the economy. And I want to know the electricity consumption. Mm. That is a LaRouchean mm. mode of studying your economy. Because the crucial characteristic of, or the crucial breakthrough for LaRouche in this regard is the, the, the term, excuse me, the term is called, well, the, the concept is a measurement of your economy according to the relative potential population density. I want a physical study of the economy. I don't want to know anything about money. Don't talk to me about money. Money is stupid. No, you know, right? No dollar bill ever dug a ditch. It does not happen. Money is completely stupid. It's what you, it's a lubrication that you use for your economy. It has no inherent meaning. It's, it's stupid. Forget it. Instead, just look at the physical characteristic of the economy. And he said, consider that on the one hand, you have A, you know, economy A, and it can handle this many people per square kilometer at this standard of living. And then you look at economy B, which is the same economy, but later in time, and it can handle a higher population density at a higher standard of living. Well, if you look at not just the particular population density at any particular time, but the potential population density, how much you could physically provide for, then you see a measurement for whether the economy is Anti-entropic is going in the opposite mm. direction than, than these guys would say. And we should be pursuing that. When you lower the energy flux density, the potential population density falls, mm. and then the collapse will come later. Yeah. You won't immediately see the result, but it's there. Uh, and that kind of, if you go to that idea of decoupling from GDP, then you have a physical standard and you no longer have to live in this outrageous liberal idea of happiness, which yes, is- Yes, <laughs> happiness. I'm glad you said that because what I'm thinking about is this repugnant conclusion. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Oh, I have from you, yeah. Oh, right, right, it's in the video, which is like, yeah, it's it's this, the, this notion that the bigger the population, the less happy it has to be, <laughs> you know? It, it's predicated on this idea of a, a limited amount of happiness to go around, which yes. is, I think, in replace of, it's it's meant to replace the idea of there's limited resources that will make you happy to go around, and I think that that's total bullshit. Like, so that's why I like what you just said. You know, it's funny you say that you're not like Marxist or anything, but so many of your ideas yeah. sound just like what I'm like. What you just said about money, what you said about states and mm -hmm. state sovereignty. Uh, there was something else. I'm like, Daniel, just sound, you sound like a Marxist <laughs> to me. I mean, whatever, labels are stupid, but. Um, 
Well, okay, I, I can address that. That's yeah. actually interesting too. The key thing, I have a lot of respect for my Marxist-Leninist brothers <laughs> and sisters, right? I have a lot of respect for people who are pursuing a society with, you know, without scarcity. And I have a lot of respect for people who believe in human progress and are anti-Malthusian. And I, and I love them and I want to be work, work with them and, and collaborate to stop mass genocide, which is what's happening. Yeah, where's the, where's the daylight between you and the Marxists? Okay, all right. So <laughs> the crucial thing is the question of the measurement of the effect of a scientific discovery on society. Because this is the whole, this is what LaRouche identifies as his breakthrough, as his unique discovery and contribution to physical economy. It is not possible to measure in scalar in scalars the, the 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 changes that are introduced through new technology, new scientific capabilities. And his view was that Marx does that; he commits that error, among others. But that that's the crucial error that he that he sees. Um, so the transformation is such that it's not just that you can create more, but you can create something that has a different quality in the sense of energy flux density, mm -hmm. not, 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 in some other, not in some other characteristic. It increases the degrees of freedom of humanity in the same sense that you see life developing, that life can go from you know, tied to the, to the ocean and then, you know, reach out into when the mammals can go, can move around with greater mobility than any other creature that came before them and so forth. And you populate all of the continents. Well, mankind has that kind of increases in the dimension of his capability. Hmm. Physical chemistry is a great way to think about it. The breakthrough that comes between, um, you know, a bronze uh, iron society and, and or bronze society and, and an iron age society is not, in my view, at all uh, approachable from a Marxist standpoint, because mm. the distinction is a matter of the introduction of chemistry, mm. of a new characteristic of chemistry. For example, I mean, you can't, um, you can't do certain types of metallurgy without an intensity of heat that mm. is sufficient to cause the transformation, the chemical transformation you're looking for. And so when you go from firewood to charcoal and coke, then you have fundamentally increased mankind's power over the universe with a completely new principle that did not exist in a way that was usable by man previously. Mm. So that's, that's the territory where you begin to, you know, get into LaRouche um, from, you know, in a, in a very distinct way. This is his investigation of the process of human creativity and his assertion which is very important because it goes against Kant uh, massively uh, and Hegel, really, that creativity is intelligible, that it is possible to understand and therefore voluntarily, willfully organize society on the basis of the increasing creativity of your population that that's actually the purpose of human economy. Human economy is not about economic growth, he says. He hmm. says, it's a, you put the input into human economy is human individuals. The output is human individuals at a higher cultural, mental, creative capability. And that's the whole point. Hmm. 
I'm trying to parse the, the difference. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I'm not quite seeing where the conflict is. It almost seems like it's a build on some of you know the fundamental Marxist theories, you know, is this build on like actually it's even more so this way. Um you may be right. I know, but I uh, I, I I may not be getting it either. <laughs> You're very well, smart, Daniel. I'm like trying to keep up here. <laughs> no, I don't I okay, here's my um I have to learn more more about where you're coming from yeah. because I realize that I'm not necessarily communicating in a way that is sufficiently, uh, um, you know, direct uh, on these points. And I'm interested yeah. in them. I'm not interested in them because I'm trying to win a debate, but I'm interested right, right. in them because they're interesting yeah. and important. But I will say this, I'm going to be teaching the first class. I'm going to be doing a joint class with my friend, Jason Ross of a eight week class on LaRouche's economics. And that's going to be on February the 16th, next Wednesday. So um, you're invited to learn more. Cool. Yeah, I've been listening in on some of your Twitter spaces and they've been so interesting to listen to. I feel like yeah, I really learned so much. I'm so like grateful to you guys for putting, putting like information out there. Um, it's so valuable to just, even if you don't want to, it's not for people to just like sit and agree with. It's just sort of like, let it kind of like wash over you and like, okay, this actually makes some of this makes sense. Some of this is a little over my head or whatever, but just to have these like thought provoking, you know, things introduced, like, like we were talking about, like so much media is just, it doesn't challenge your brain in any way. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, I thank you for doing stuff. the same thing. I thank you very much for doing the oh. same thing. You know, when I first watched your um, consumerism mm -hmm. uh, feature, that that uh, immediately it confirms what you're talking about in the most recent feature, which is that there has been you you are a you guys are a very important expression of the fact, in my view, that there is something to be optimistic about in American politics. Because there are young, there are people who are increasingly optimistic and steadfast yeah. against Malthusianism and against you know those general policies. So you know we got something. We got something to work with. Yeah. No, I don't want. I don't want to be pessimistic. I want to live. I want to. Like, <laughs> there's so much to do. Yes. You can see I'm turning into an angel now from this this part of the conversation. <laughs> I'm surrounded by light and I'm ascending. <laughs> To a higher form of energy. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when I talk to Daniel. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been talking to Daniel Burke. What do you want to plug today, Daniel? Well, thank you for inviting me into the Space Commune. And uh, (laughs) I would like people to follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm mostly active, which is at Burke4Senate with the digit four. That's... um, that's from my campaign for Senate. I didn't know you can change your, your handle afterwards. <laughs> and uh, I would like you to please um, uh, watch the Schiller Institute. You know, we're having really high level conferences. On Thursday, we're having this remarkable conference with the foremost Russian foreign policy think tank that has Dmitry Peskov, who's, you know, the assistant to Putin on its uh, leadership and gets, commun- you know, has meetings with uh, Sergei Lavrov every year. And we're having a conversation with them about Afghanistan. Our, our, our founder, Helga Zeppelin-Rouche, will be talking to them about our proposals for the development of Afghanistan and to lift people there out of the atrocious humanitarian crisis. So check out the Schiller Institute and uh, sign up and become a member. And please also visit the LaRouche organization. Awesome. Yeah, I can definitely endorse those spa- those spaces that they um, they host the Daniel and Cade host. They're really great. They might sound intimidating. Like, Oh, that sounds way above my head. Just listen for like 10, 15 minutes and you'll, you'll find it really interesting. Even if you don't absorb everything totally, they're really great. Um, they do a great job. Thank you. <laughs>